That's the funny thing, you see, about those people now, the visitors that called on yeah. about Woodbrook, and uh, they'll always tell me, well, I wrote, I've read that uh, book of Woodbrook, you know. And yeah. it's a wonderful book, it's by Thompson, you know, and sure, he was here, and he was in love with Miss Phoebe, and oh, well, I just say yes to them, yeah. Woodbrook is an old Anglo-Irish type of house on the road from Carrick-on-Shannon to Boyle in County Roscommon. David Thompson wrote about his life there in Woodbrook. It was published in 1974. But the story of Woodbrook begins on a summer's day in 1932. children excitedly pulled me towards the right-hand window of the car, and I saw its slate roof from the turn of the road at the top of Hughestown Hill. It was about midday and sunny. The slates shone for a moment between the leaves of beech trees, and we descended rattling towards the house, looking out from the window of this old Fiat, which had fetched us from the station three miles away. Though I absorbed through the window of the Fiat, the present only, strongly flying, I found in the days and years that followed that I had begun to uncover a physical past, which lives in my memory now, where the details academically learnt have sunk. absorbing book um, and the history and the personal story are beautifully integrated uh, they carry you forward uh, it, it's rather a feat that the history doesn't impede the personal narrative in any way it's very um, expertly interleaved with it I don't think I can I can say what made me write it. I think that um, all books and ideas for writing suddenly come into my head. Certainly, I couldn't have written it any nearer to the time. I don't think. I think you have to be away from from what you're writing about by a number of years. From the earliest pages of the book on, you have this uh, marvellous feeling of the crumbling big house, uh, the window propped up with the dumbbell, uh, the rats, uh, the leaking roof. and um, It is a, a, a wonderful big house book. Um, it's it's a, a beautifully written love story, um, a very tender and touching love story uh, an improbable one which is in its favour it's not a cliche written love story by any means uh, everything is anti-cliche in a sense um, where the central story is concerned and uh, a straightforward history, a history of landlord tenant relationships in Ireland uh, it has enormous virtues um, I would imagine that uh, readers uh, are taken by surprise to find that at one moment you're reading one kind of a book and 
at another moment you're reading another. But uh, they are beautifully integrated and, and very, very successfully so, I think. I never knew anything about the book. Only my sister, well, I had a sister married on Rockingham. She stayed now, she's, well, a year and a half dead. So she came out this day, and when she came in, she says, there's a book uh, written about you, and it's all about you, she says to me like that. And I said, is it? Well, she says, my son now wrote down from Dublin, and... Uh, she said, he's sitting it down, and when I get it, she says, I won't read it, but I'll bring it up to you, and I'll come up in a week's time for it and try and have it read. Well, when I got it, I stood up day and night at it. And, uh, well, I said, well, there's a lot of it now, the truth. Winnie Mulvey, or Winnie Jordan, as she was then, is now in her mid-80s and still lives in Carrick-on-Shannon. She was cook at Woodbrook when David Thompson was there. She and the other servants of the house, along with the Maxwell brothers who lived nearby and worked on the farm, were there on that June day to greet Mrs Kirkwood, Ivy, and her daughters Phoebe and Tony, who had just returned from London, where they spent most of the year. Charles Kirkwood, Charlie, or the Major, stayed on all year at Woodbrook to work the farm and to see to his pride and joy his horses. I was um, getting odd jobs when I was at Oxford to make some pocket money in the holidays and the vacations and I I did private tutoring and somebody introduced me to them you see because they, they wanted a lesson in I don't know what, I can't remember what subjects but they, and so I went to their London house first and then they invited me over for the summer, that's how it began Woodbrook wasn't a huge estate about 250 acres the house isn't a mansion, modest enough as big houses go. But from that first day, it was something special for David Thompson and for most people who've read Woodbrook. This here, Tommy, is the kitchen, exactly as it was, isn't it? Well, with the exception of the range. There was a big old iron range here. There was, oh yeah. When we came here then, we replastered, refurbished this, yeah. this kitchen... And we took the meat crooks That's out right. of the rafters. Yeah, the, yeah. the meat crooks are missing. Yeah. Now, yeah. when we plastered the ceiling, we took out, uh, took down the well, meat. Well, is, is the old ceiling still there now? Are you, did you bring down the, no, no. the roof or no, the no. ceiling? No, the ceiling is well, exactly the same as it was. Ah, oh, without yeah. the meat crooks. I know. We, took out the meat. Correct. we don't need meat crooks because um, we can't afford that much meat. John A. Malone and his wife Mary live in Woodbrook House now. They raise cattle, when weather permits, on the remaining 60 acres or so. Tommy Maxwell, who is David Thompson's friend at Woodbrook, still lives nearby. He often visits the Malones in the big house, the same house that was forbidden to him when he was a young farmhand in the Kirkwood's day. Oh, my God, as I was saw here. I remember looking in the bathroom window one day. I was bringing up the porch from Coutard of a son that was a soon, and uh, we used to have to... The Kirkwoods used to have to get their letters of a Sunday as well, you see. Well, there was no delivery of a Sunday. Yeah? But uh, I came up with the letters, you know, after um, first mass, you know, or 11 o'clock in the day. Mm. And there was another lad along with me, Tommy Muldoon, you know. I know you. Well, I wouldn't That know. lived in the gatehouse. Yeah, well, I know the, ga the gatehouse all right. We never... It was a, a dark window, you know. You couldn't see in through, but it was open this day. And so we got so 
what we look only in at this bat and things like that. And who comes up on the old corner behind us with a stick? Yeah. <laughs> and he caught us looking in. <laughs> because we had a question. I says, I was up with the letters. I delivered them on the table, you know. And what Muldoon was doing up, he was doing a message for the girls or something. Mm. But he honestly shook the stick at us. <laughs> for David Thompson, this bathroom at Woodbrook wasn't just another room in the house. It had special memories. As he sets the scene in the early part of the book, he describes being alone with Winnie on Sunday mornings while the family were out. He remembers Winnie coming from a bath and their embarrassment at meeting each other in the corridor. David had in it anywhere that he was, that I didn't know he was in the house, and that how I went up and had this bath, and that I was singing at the top of my voice. <laughs> It never occurred to me in those days that she could want to make herself beautiful or that the dresses and hats she put on after clearing up the lunchtime debris would appeal to men. She was, after all, rather old, 30 or more. Her eyes were obscured, like mine, by spectacles. And though hers were not so thick, they had black speckled frames like tortoise shell which I thought added to the disfigurement we shared. John and Mary Malone read Woodbrook after they bought the house in 1970. They, and visitors to the house, are still fascinated by David Thompson's writing. John Malone and Tommy Maxwell remembered this bathroom section of the book while exploring the house together. Well, this would be the, the famous <coughs> corridor now, Tommy, where Thompson and... Winnie met one Sunday morning. Correct, going down here. Going down, oh, this... David was coming up or Winnie was going down. After the bath. After the, the bath. And why, doing herself up, you know. I'm mm. going down. I told him where the servant's room was. You know, yeah. There, you and and uh, this is where they met. Yeah, but <laughs> that's how he put in the woo, so we don't know, but he... he well, of course... Well, he, well, would he tell a lie? Ah, well, I mean, a story <laughs> is a story, you know. You're not telling a lie in a story. <laughs> I think, you know, because um, uh, he couldn't uh, know himself. Maybe he might often be passing up and down and mm. he knew when he was down in the toilet, you see, mm. or having a bath over a mm. Sunday. Oh, that but was it, the routine Sunday morning. He, he mightn't have met her now just to say he said it, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I find it very difficult to draw the distinction between fact and fiction in my writing because I can't write anything without a certain amount of fiction, <laughs> fiction-sounding stuff, in the same way that um, I think many people's dreams become a part of real life afterwards, get mixed up with it. And I think I perhaps do invent a bit. <laughs> Uh, it's all, I think, utterly convincing. I believe some of it may not be literally true, that we, we, we may be sometimes in an area of imaginative fiction rather than of uh, hard fact, but I, I think all those early passages in which the atmosphere of the house is conveyed, uh, it's a kind of atmosphere I know. Uh, I've been in such houses in their decline, uh, at a certain point, perhaps they've all changed hands now and they're all occupied either by uh, 
they're either hotels that are occupied by religious orders or else they're occupied by people who have money and, and have done them up. But uh, up to the 1950s anyway, the late 1950s, there were many such houses uh, inhabited by a family whose fortunes were uh, very precarious and and uh, he beautifully conveys the atmosphere of such a house and the psychology of its inhabitants. The Kirkwoods had lived on this land around the hill of Osna, bordering the Shannon River for hundreds of years. They were Cromwellian planters. The Maxwell family who worked for them knew this. They also knew these were their lands originally. David Thompson, an Englishman, gradually found out all about this and about the Kirkwood's ancestors, including the man known as Colonel Tom, or Uncle Tom, to the family. Colonel Tom lived near three of the most hated men in Ireland, Colonel King Harmon of Rockingham, a mile away, Lord Kingston of Kilronan, and the Earl of Leitrim, Colonel of the Leitrim Regiment, who had a lot of land and made a lot of fuss near Carrick. Leitrim was ambushed and shot dead on his way to evict tenants on his distant estates in Donegal. King Harmon, though a supporter of Home Rule, was one of those who tried to rouse Westminster to a policy of indiscriminate revenge. The draconian punishments he inflicted on his tenants remain a local legend. The young Lord Kingston allowed his agent Tatlow to enforce evictions by the cruelest methods Wilfred Scorn Blunt, the English poet, ever witnessed in his travels through Ireland. I cannot find out whether Colonel Tom evicted people from his part of the plains of Boyle nearby or from his distant lands in County Sligo, but on the home farm he was certainly not as unpopular as his surviving neighbour. Come on, then! Tom's glorious distinction was on the racecourses of England. The whole district basked in its reflection. Their little stable repeatedly beat all the dukes and princes on the far side. Everyone for miles around put money on the Woodbrook horses, and names now long forgotten by the rest of the racing world are still remembered by their grandchildren. Paddy Marr, Apollo Belvedere, Phaeton, Knight of Usna, and, best of all, the White Knight. The White Knight was, was born here. Oh, he was. Oh, yeah. He was born down under the house there. And uh, when he was found in the morning, he was in the river, in the big river down there. This is what Thompson refers to as the canal. The canal, yeah, yeah. And uh, when they pulled him out, you know, Colonel Tom was down to see him. And he looked so mangy looking and everything like that, he said, I wish he was drowned. <laughs> The moral of the story is yeah. if you want to breed a horse capable of winning all the classics. Yeah, yeah. Wash him immediately. Yeah. Could I, well, throw, throw him in the river, huh? Eh? Well, when he's born. That could have been right. There could be something in it, you know. Charlie Kirkwood still kept horses in the 1930s, but far from profitably. David Thompson had hardly arrived in Woodbrook when a horse was carefully chosen for him. David had fallen in love with his elder pupil, Phoebe. It was an innocent, 
platonic kind of love affair between an 18-year-old and an 11-year-old. It had begun in London, but that first summer in Woodbrook made it more intense as they explored the countryside together on horseback. The heart of Woodbrook was a natural spring called by some the spring well or the boiling well and by those who used its water daily, the well. It boiled very cold and seemed to me holy and secret long before I thought about the meaning of the holy wells of Ireland. You can see a kind of a cluster of bushes up for you. Well, that's where the well is bursting out. Oh, yeah. And it's flowing down into the Shannon, the spring well we used to call it. Yeah. And that was... Clear and cool yeah. as, as... It's ice cold. The Even warmest day in summer. It's to, ice cold. It'll freeze you. Phoebe and I stopped at the well because we were so hot and thirsty. Our cheeks, pale from London, were burning in the sun. Her father was, as usual, on a nervous young horse. Steady ones bored him just as walking bored him and kept well ahead. By the stream we dismounted and she went to drink while I held her horse with mine. She was wearing light jodhpurs and a sleeveless shirt, the one I liked her best in at that time. The one I always think of as the strawberry shirt, not only because of its colour, but because the material was puckered into small pointed sections rounded at the base, each with a fleck of yellow in it, like a segment of a strawberry. In sunlight, the colour glowed faintly on her cheek. It had a round neck, rather low, no collar, no buttons. It left the whole of her shoulders bare, except a piece two inches wide, and was close and fragile enough to show the full outline of her growing breasts. It made her seem more like a woman than a child. Perhaps that is why I liked her strawberry shirt. She'd go to bed all right, the very minute she was very obedient, the very, to the minute that she is. And I'd go up, you know, and uh, uh, she, she'd say, well, I don't want you to read for me now, but I want you to make fun for me. And, you know, sometimes there used to be flies in, in the room. <laughs> and I used to be going over, pretending I was catching them, and I'd say, oh, that one, that one, and to the next minute she was asleep. Did you see where I crossed the wall, she said. You can reach the water with your mouth lying down. It's nicer, but if you want to scoop it up, your hands don't matter. New water comes all the time and flows out. I found enough space between the lilies to lie down. They were in flower. I got rid of the reflection of my face by taking off my spectacles and staring closely through the water at the sandy floor. The sand had been carried there, I think, to keep the water clean. There were no weeds. The dark place, shadowy and overhung, where the water looked almost black and where I would have chosen to drink, was beyond my reach, and I put my lips to the bright part near me. Phoebe called. I did not answer, but sentimentally tried to reckon how long the water she had touched would take to reach the washing place, to flow along the stream past the Maxwell's house, along to her house, under the avenue and into the brook. It was probably lost in the big lake already, I thought. I climbed the wall and walked quickly to her. 
As David's love for Phoebe grew, so did his desire for knowledge of the past of the area and the lives of people who weren't of the Kirkwood class. Willie Maxwell told him about the fate of one girl, about Phoebe's age, at the hands of the infamous Coot. Willie said Coot was a tyrant. Every girl that would go to get married in that time had to spend the first night with him. And there was one girl she refused to go. And the father came and told him she wouldn't come. And he said to him, Come, come, first bring her to me, says he, and I won't molest her in any way. And she went on them conditions. And she had a long head of hair down into two plaits, and he plaited each plait. He had two wild clib, young, untrained horses inside in the stables. And he got her, he pulled her in, and he tied her heads of hairs to the two clibs, and he let them off. And the road was different than what you go down to Coot Hall now. It wheeled to the right and it went over. They galloped over to Oakport, to the domain of Oakport, and going up the side of the hill, the head separated from the body, and a bush has grown up in it and is there yet. The result of my ignorance was that when I first heard the Maxwells speak bitterly of England, I was shocked and thought them unjust. The most that I could remember was that Ireland had always been a thorn in England's side, and I only remembered that because in my prep school days I wondered how a thorn could get into one's side. Phoebe was in a light blue bathing dress. I should like to describe her, but cannot. The impression she made on me that day is indelible intensely vivid, but her beauty depended so much on movement that even a good portrait can only hint at it. For instance, I know that her arms and legs were shapely, her legs long, her arms strong and rounded but light, and that her body was slim and graceful. But many girls have graceful bodies, arms and legs. It is Phoebe's own grace of movement that I cannot find words for, her individual way. And this is true, too, of her face, because without her quick humour, her eagerness and the transparency of her emotions, it was merely an attractive, simple face. Like clear water, it showed many changing lights that cannot hold. There's a photograph that I found in James Corrett's. In the in stable the, room. In the jockey's. Jockey room. Yes. yes. See, I know it's Fabies. Yes. She signed it yes, to James from... from uh, from uh, Miss Fabie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what age do you think you was she? Well, she could be no more than about 15 or 16 at the time. Ah. We found it outside in the... And she uh, mightn't be her. She mightn't be that now. Lovely looking girl, wasn't she? She was, you know. The syringa was still flowering, entangled in the branches of the tree and hanging from the cowshed wall some eight feet high. I put the eggs down in the grass at the foot of the tree and reached and plucked a few sprays of the rich, sweet-smelling flowers. They are like orange blossom. Then, as Phoebe looked up at them, her cheeks and the rounded ends of her shoulders that had been coloured by the sun seemed almost edible to me, like peaches. As she took the flowers from me, she looked at my eyes, then pressed the flowers to her face. I kissed her shoulder and drew her against my naked chest, slightly, and only for a second. She looked at me again, for only a second, when I took my grasping arm away, and her eyes had changed. 
They were like open windows. She could never draw the blinds. Tell me, had you any other boyfriends around the place? Uh, Apart from yourself, like that. (laughs) Well, no. (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean, she was... (laughs) She, she was too much of the lady for the like of me. <laughs> but, she, but apart from that, you know, well, he was her tutor, you see. That's what he was here. He was choosing the kid, you know. So that was that. I never knew whether he had affections for her or whether they had a love affair or anything like that until he wrote the book. My bedroom was separated from hers by an archway closed only with matchboarding. We could talk to each other through the partition without raising our voices, and one could always hear the other leaving or entering the room, and also every other movement, the sound of a drawer, the scrape of a chair, the creaking of a bed. Was this not the little partition they used to talk to? That's, that's the partition, I think, where Thompson slept here and she slept next door. Both rooms looked westward to the copper beach and down the drive until it turned away and left a wide view of the water meadow by the canal. The corn crake had begun its evening croaking, hidden in the long grass there. Crake, 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 crake. A monotonous and seemingly endless rhythm on one note, which I have never heard anywhere but Woodbrook. It fills me with nostalgia now for the seething life of that house and farm, and it reminds me of the evening of Syringa. It's an unusual love story uh, by modern standards. Uh, it's unusual, first of all, in the innocence uh, of the participants, and uh, it's unusual in the fact that there are no dramatic confrontations, and there is virtually, in the ordinary sense, however intense some of the passages, uh, such as the passage about the syringa, the, the scenes in the boat may be, uh, there is no sex. Uh, and uh, this, uh, I must say, is a kind of love story that has been dispossessed also, uh, it, it, it's it, it's the kind of love story that isn't any longer written. Uh, most love stories nowadays are violent, uh, melodramatic, uh, confrontational, uh, and uh, f- full of physical sex is described at length. Uh, and uh, in in that respect alone, it's a very rare achievement. She says she doesn't like the way you mess about with Phoebe. I hated the words, and so I think did she. Phoebe's parents didn't approve of David's relationship with their daughter, either because of her age or class reasons. David Thompson isn't sure. David and Phoebe's disengagement began. It was a long and painful process. He even travelled Ireland by bicycle to try and forget their past together. I cannot remember how he parted. I know I looked out at the mountains and the lake, which were dark. Perhaps she left the room while I was gazing there. I know I remained alone in the room for some time. I remember sitting down by the bare, polished dining room table and rolling a cigarette, searching my pockets for matches in vain, and finding some at last in a candlestick in the sideboard. Friendly matches, the usual Irish brand. 
I could hear Phoebe practicing the violin upstairs. She was growing up then into a, a woman, and I was a young man, and the usual, you know, from the age of 17 or so, she was really a, a woman, and very, very attractive woman. So that um, I suppose it would cause any parents a little bit of nervousness, you know. The historical viewpoint is, by the standards of our present-day revisionists, uh, severe, uh, both on the ascendancy uh, and on English rule in Ireland generally. Uh, He makes no bones about the fact that uh, the English colony in Ireland was a garrison uh, and that they were expropriators and that Irish history, in large part, is to be read as a process of brutal dispossession and expropriation, uh, and then a return to possession by the originally dispossessed. Uh, One of the most uh, extraordinary passages is towards the end, in which uh, we get a picture of this, uh, let's call them peasant family, though the word peasant wouldn't be exactly it, um, sitting quietly through the centuries, uh, on the edges, you might say, of the estate, knowing that sooner or later it will come back to them. And that is a way of seeing recent Irish history, an inevitable process of repossession of the land by some, at least, of those who were dispossessed. Many others, of course, uh, weaker than the Maxwells in the book, uh, took to the emigrant boat or were forced onto the emigrant boat uh, and will never be seen again in Ireland. But uh, for some, the, the, it, it, one of the most striking things is, is the feeling that uh, the Kirkwoods and their like had only a temporary uh, lease of their possessions. By the early 1940s, the financial situation for Charles and Ivy Kirkwood had become desperate. They were hopeless at managing money. Charlie insisted on keeping horses to his cost. They were now so heavily in debt, there was nothing left to do but to sell what remained of their lands and the house. Some of the Hill of Usna had already been sold to the local golf club. David was still with the family when Phoebe, her mother and sister, left Woodbrook for the last time as snow lay on the ground. It must have been Phoebe's last memory of Woodbrook this purity. Charlie brought the Fiat to the front of the house in the early afternoon. Her eyes seemed to melt as we said goodbye at the door. But with the usual business of seeing to suitcases and keeping the dogs out of the car, I hardly saw her. I think she had stockings on, a rare thing, and a yellow jersey underneath her overcoat. 
I could describe the cases more exactly. Charlie drove off jerkily and an arm waved. It may have been hers, but her coat and Ivy's were almost the same colour and the one window of the car that would open gave room only for one arm. The sun was dazzling on the snow. A few minutes later, I watched the car climb Hughestown Hill and disappear. The drawing room fire needed making up before Charlie's return, but I would not go into the house just then and follow the dogs all over Shanwalia to the lakeside. The snow was untouched until we marked it and absolutely silent, the sky the palest possible blue, almost white, the air pellucid, but no living thing to be seen for miles except a herd of bullocks huddled and still against a hedge. When the dogs ran over the hill, I did not follow them, and suddenly I felt that extraordinary sensation of imagining myself the only person in the world. Other people have described it to me, and I had had the experience once or twice before, but never so convincingly. It lasted a few seconds, then was broken by the whistle of the Dublin train leaving Carrick Station. I went back to the house to mend the fire. Oh, it was a wonderful time. That house was heaven and earth. I was lonesome in one way when I was leaving it. But the major used to always say, well, the night before I left, well, they came down to the kitchen and we were talking for a long time and Mrs Kirkwood said, well, when, when you go, we'll have to shut the door. Well, I said, I don't think I was much addition to you. And he said, well, it's Joe Murphy that'll be eating all the grand cakes and all the lovely meals and puddings and everything instead of us, you know. Winnie had married Joe Mulvey and had moved away from Woodbrook. She still remembers the Maxwell brothers' determination to make Woodbrook and the lands of Osna theirs again, and the ironic result. I never heard one of the Maxwell family say anything else against the Major. It was this matter of horses alone, the essential matter of Woodbrook, that caused a judgment to be made. The hostility openly expressed to me was slight. Probably none of the brothers was conscious of the deeper ancient one that lay beneath it. But some time later, when I asked Tom whether he knew what it was that in the end put every buyer off, the hawthorn bushes on Shanwalia that had continually to be cut back, the spreading flag lilies that encroached on pasture, the thistly places we had not attended to enough, the beds of rushes on the bottoms. He shrugged his shoulders. Then he said simply, Woodbrook belongs to us. He said it naturally and quietly, as though the whole world knew it, as though it would cause me no surprise. Be hooker, be crooked, I had to get the house, but... When they got it in, they didn't keep it so long, you see. They began to fall out among themselves. And Jimmy wanted so much. And, and you know, uh, they wrote in to the brother from the... And uh, there was an American, Michael. Michael was a grand man No, He was awful nice. He was in the RIC here. And when the trouble started, like, he left them. And he went for America. Michael bought it. He couldn't leave it to one person. So he, uh, Michael came over and uh, bought it and left it that way anyway. And then they were kind of glad. Well, then 
the Garflings, I think, took over so much of the best land, you know. And then Jimmy and Tommy. I think Tommy got a share of the land, like, and Jimmy got a share in it anyway. But um, they put in cattle and began to feed them anyway. And what I heard, like, well, Tommy thought Jimmy had too much in and from the selling and Jimmy thought Tommy had too much in anyway, but they fell out among themselves anyway about it anyway. But the next thing then, Jimmy sold his bit. Their elder brother in America bought the house from the Kirkwoods and one of the brothers and his wife went to live in it. And it was just too much for them. This big house with a bad roof. And they didn't like it, and they sold it quite quickly. So it is an irony, really, that they got their life's desire, and then, you know, it, it wasn't right for them. Well, we weren't, well, we'd done the best we could, you know, that was that, you know. We didn't amass our fortune here yet, either, Tommy. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I always heard old Irish men talking, you know, they used to be called to old places, and we used to be asking uh, the definition of us now. And yeah. it says the land of the cry. The land Look, of the cry? Yeah. There were about 20 families there in the famine time, and they were all thrown out and died, and the could be walking across them there on the golf course. <laughs> While Woodbrook was up for sale, the Kirkwood family had moved to Dublin to stay with relatives in Hoth. David saw Phoebe for the last time as they waited for the tram to take him back to London. It was a winter's evening. She picked leaves from the evergreen hedge and bit one of them. The tram was louder now. We heard it sliding noisily to its first stop. She looked at me. You'll have to go. I took her hand, but the tram was in my ears, nearer and noisier, the last one to catch the boat train. It seemed to me that she shivered. I pulled her to me and whispered, See you at Easter, into her ear. I kissed her ear. It was cold and smelt of a scent I had never smelled before. She leant against me softly, her hand on the back of my neck. I kissed her cheek, then heard the tram again. She put her hands quickly and gently over my ears and turned me towards her lips. She kissed me passionately, and for a second I was startled and did not respond. Then we kissed. Her hands were away from my ears, clasping me to her as I clasped her to me. And I did not hear the tram until the driver put its brakes on and screamed in a strident note, descending to groan towards its stopping place opposite the house. I ran to it. I thought of nothing but those parting minutes during the whole tedious journey to London. The parting was a revelation and a confusion too. Could people go back to each other after so long? I thought not. I longed to, but thought not. David Thompson got a job with the BBC that same year. He and his wife, Martina, live still in Camden Town. He never returned to County Roscommon, 
except to write the book in 1968. For him, the story of Woodbrook ended with a series of letters in the winter of 1943. Here I am, feeling cross, so I'm writing to you. She had suddenly fallen ill, and the doctor had ordered her to stay in bed for another week at least. Many days then passed without a letter. I remember my acute anxiety, my watching of the doormat for the post. It came at last, near the end of the month, on a foggy day, a single letter white on the doormat and the right shape. There were only a few words in the letter. It said what I knew it would say when I picked it up from the mat, that Phoebe was dead. I don't think anybody forgets. I mean, however long it is since the death of a close friend, you you don't forget them. You may um, forget a lot of details of what happened, but you don't forget the person, I don't think. I'll give you an example of why I don't like revisiting places where I had a good life, and that is that I, I once, uh, 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 the BBC had a, a series of programs about writers. It was called Return Journey. That's to say, you went to the place where you lived in your youth or your childhood, and um, I went to Nairn in the north of Scotland, where I spent my early childhood. And when I got there, I suddenly hated the place. I, I, I couldn't bear it. Because I had nothing, I felt I had nothing to do with it now. The same to Woodbrook, yes. <laughs> 